Friends, let's open up in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, this is the last time we'll be in Ephesians in 2018. And we're going to go out with a bang with two powerful, powerful verses in Ephesians 3 verses 20 and 21. Hear now God's word. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. This is a treat, Lord. You just promise that you will do infinitely more than we ask and can even think about. And so even as we bow before you and ask that you will take this passage and plant it deep in our hearts, that's the best I can come up with this morning, but your spirit is going to double down on that and do more than we could ask or imagine. Would you surprise us in the way you answer this very simple prayer? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul, when he writes his letters, he, he is familiar with kind of doing it in two parts. I think you'll, you'll recognize what, I, what I'm talking about, but Paul, when he designs his letters, they come to us in part one and part two. He does that again and again and again. Paul likes to start his letters with a lot of theology, and he likes to end his letters with a lot of practical instruction. They're front-loaded with the theology. They're back-ended with some instruction, some moral commands, some advice. So one of the most familiar letters to us is the, the book of Romans, the letter to the church in Rome. And he does exactly that. Chapters 1 through 11 is very dense theology. We get the theology, and then chapters 12 through 16 are the practical instructions for the families and the churches involved in Rome. Now, I disagree with this, but this has led some people to simplify and say, hey, you could, you could divide Paul's letters into two subheadings. One would be what God does, and the other would be what we do, right? That's how some people would describe this. This is God's part. He does the whole, you know, death, crucifixion, resurrection, glorification kind of thing, and then we do the whole hospitality, mercy, evangelism, missions kind of thing, what God does, what we do, and that's the divide. But I don't think that's the right title for those two parts. The more we grow in our Christian lives, I believe the more we realize just how intimately involved God is in our present Christian growth. Like the more we mature and the more we start to look and smell like Jesus, the less we would ever say, God led me to salvation and now this is my part to grow myself in the Christian life. We joked about that earlier in Ephesians back in October when we said the Christian who takes credit for his or her Christian growth is like my five-year-old who takes credit for gathering his Halloween candy, right? That took a ton of work to get him ready and dressed and door-to-door and back home with a pile of candy. How dare he say it's his candy? That's my candy. I earned that candy. Well, the same is true in the Christian life. The Christian who claims credit for growth and spirituality and communion with God and sanctification just looks really, really silly. Looks like my five-year-old. 
So I think a better division of Paul's letters, if you're trying to break this out in your mind, would be what God has done for us and what God is doing through us. So Paul front ends this with the theology, what he's done on our behalf in our salvation since before the foundations of the world. And then we get to what God is actually doing presently in us and through our church body. That's how the letter to the Romans is divided. That's how the letter to the Ephesians is divided. Chapters 1 through 3, which we are finishing today, are what God has done for us. And chapters 4 through 6 will become in the new year what God is doing through us. That makes the last two verses of that entire part 1 really, really significant. Because these two verses that I just read, they form the bridge between what God has done through us and what God will do for us. And that bridge, as it comes to us in these two verses, is prayer. The bridge between what God has done and what God is and will do in us and through us is prayer. Christian. Do you want to see the work that God has done for us become in your life the work that God is doing in us in the present? I mean, do you want to see what you have read in Ephesians 1 through 3, that God, before the foundations of the world, has chosen you, pursued you, sealed you, and set you apart? The things we read about Jesus coming at Christmas, and living a perfect life, and dying and rising from the dead, and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father with all authority and power. Do you want to see that work that God has done for us now become the work that God is doing in us and through us today, then Christian, I beg you, pray. It is yours in Christ. It is freely offered to you. It sits before you. Pray and ask God and he will freely and generously and joyfully give it to you. Pray. Now, because this passage is about prayer, we're going to do exactly this week what we did last week. It was raining last week, so hardly anybody was here. But if you were here and you brought an umbrella and you were worshiping with us, then you saw that we spent a little bit of time talking and then we spent the back end of the time praying, right? Paul is talking about praying and so we, we ended the sermon with getting on, literally getting on our knees and praying that God would make these things so and we're going to do that again today. I don't know if you've had the experience within Presbyterian worship circles when you're singing a song and the lyrics are up on the screen and everybody is is singing out loud together, we lift up our hands, we shout, we clap, we get on our knees and nobody moves. We like sing it loudly together, but we mean like in our hearts we do all of this. I'm clapping in my heart, but I look really serious while I'm worshiping. Well, that's awkward when we do that in worship. We're not going to do that here, okay? Paul says, knees, prayer. We're going to do knees and prayer this morning. He says that in verse 14. Of course, anytime we talk about 
prayer, especially, especially in a book like Ephesians or Romans or Isaiah or Ezekiel, anytime you have a book that's just dripping with the sovereignty of God, it it brings up all those inhibitions about prayer and the relationship between the sovereignty of God, the power of God and what he's doing and why we would actually as human beings pray for anything, right? That, That question always dogs us in the back of our minds when it comes to prayer. If God, like he said in chapter 1, already has a plan for the world that can't be thwarted, he set it in place before the foundations of the earth, why am I then praying that anything new would happen if God already has an idea for what's going to happen? And if God just tells us in this passage, in chapter 3, that he's going to take whatever we ask for, and then he's going to do abundantly, infinitely more than we ask then why am I even in asking in the first place if it's so paltry that God is going to do more than I even asked in the first place? Well, those are great, fantastic questions. Everybody asks them every time we, we dive into prayer. Your, your life group will be tempted to, to get on this rabbit trail and just talk about the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And, and here's what I'll say to that. I, I don't want you to be distracted by that great question this morning. After the holidays... Let's get a beer together and let's talk about the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. That's a fantastic question. I'd love to talk to you about that later and recommend some books to you, but I don't want you to be distracted with that this morning. This morning Paul prays, this morning we pray. This morning Paul has no problem talking about the incredible sovereignty of God more than we're even willing to talk about his sovereignty and then turn right around and drop on his knees in prayer. And so today we're going to follow suit and we're going to do the exact same thing. Does that make sense? Like today is knees and prayer, tomorrow is beer and D.A. Carson and, and those kind of discussions, right? So, so we get where we're going today in our sermon. Well, let's get right to the text. Let's look at verse 20. Because Paul finishes that whole section from 14 down, which we had talked about last week, by saying, you know, I'm asking for all these things. I'm asking for a miracle. But here's what I take confidence in, in verse 20. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. That's how he addresses God. You need to see Paul's progression of superlatives here in the Greek because he basically gets so excited about the God he's praying to that he stops using real Greek words and starts making words up. He's coining words in this passage just to describe what he's talking about. First of all, notice that he doubles down by saying it's not just what we ask but it's what we think. Think about the relationship between what we're asking and what we're actually thinking. You know that there's a difference between the two because we all experience this with our bosses all the time. I think something grand in my mind, and then I imagine what my boss will say to me, and so then I break it down to something more manageable, and that's what I ask her, right? I bring this request to her. It's not quite what I thought, but it's what I'm willing to ask. And so what we ask is always going to be less than what we think. And in one fell swoop, Paul is able to just put that aside because he says, God right now is not even going off what you're willing to ask, 
like what you have the courage to say to him out loud or in a prayer group in front of other people, he's just going to go ahead and start with whatever you thought. That's where he's going to begin this morning. Whatever popped into your mind that you then worked down into a manageable request, God's just going to work back and he's going to start with what you thought in the first place. Isn't that incredible? That's the baseline. That's the bare minimum. And then Paul gets excited. This is what he says in the Greek. This is, this is how I imagine his mind working when he's in prison, in Rome, about to die, thinking about a God who is generous in answering prayer. This is what he says. I think he first writes, God is able to do all that we ask or think. And that is incredible. I mean, not just what we ask, but what we think. God is able to do all of that. But then he looks at that in his letter, and it just doesn't have the right feel to it. So he adds another word. And he tries again, and he says, God is able to do above all that we ask or think. Can you imagine a God who would do that? But that looks sparse, and so he goes back to the drawing board, and he adds another word, and he says, okay, I got it this time. God is able to do abundantly above all that we ask or think, and what could possibly be more than abundantly above all that we ask or think. But Paul looks at that, and he says, that's not, it just doesn't have the right ring to it, and so I'm going to grab a prefix in the Greek, and I'm going to stick it on the word abundantly, and we translate that. God is able to do, if you can even say this, more abundantly above all that we ask or think. But Paul sees that and he says, that's not quite enough. I'm going to grab another prefix and you can't do this in English or in Greek, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I'm going to put a prefix on a prefix. And this is going to be the first person who has ever said this word in Greek. I'm going to coin it and I'm going to attribute it to God. And I'm going to go ahead and say, God is able to do, get this, infinitely more abundantly above all that we ask or think. Wow. Wow. We've left the human language. Wow. Christian, I wish, I wish... I could describe the wealth of God. I I wish I could describe what Paul says when he says that God is rich in grace and mercy. When he says Christ contains unsearchable riches. When he says that there's a, a breadth and a width to Christ's love that is incomprehensible for the human mind. I wish I could describe God's lavish, generous, free spending that he makes for his church. I wish I could describe it to you, but human language fails. It fails me this morning, and it failed a man who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write, and he came up against the edges of the human, the Greek language, and he begins inventing words, and he can only say, I'm going to leave this to your imagination. Take whatever I say, and imagine what I'm talking about with respect to God. 
if all this is really true, if God could be as generous and as rich as he is described in this passage, then the church's prayer problem is not that she asks too much, it's that she asks too little. Her her requests are so small. They're so paltry. They just don't match the generosity, the freedom that God has for his church. I think the enemy of the church is not that she doesn't pray. I don't think I've ever been in a church, liberal or conservative, mega church or tiny church, urban church or suburban or rural church. I don't think I've ever been in a church that didn't at one point somewhere somehow pray The problem is not that the church doesn't pray. Everybody at some point on Sunday morning closes their eyes and says something to God, at least to give the worship team a chance to get on stage. Somebody's going to say something. The problem is not that she doesn't pray. The problem is that it's just so small. It's just so meager. It It just doesn't match the God we meet in the book of Ephesians. This is the invitation to pray, and to pray boldly. This all made me think about the story of the prodigal son. Walk with me a moment through this very, very familiar story. You guys know that the son left his father, and he took his inheritance, lived how he wanted to live, spent all of his inheritance, realized in his poverty My my father's house is rich, it's wealthy. What if I went back, not as a son, but as a hired servant, and he just hired me, and I worked a job, and I earned my wage? That would be a better arrangement than my poverty now. So we know the story. He, He works up the courage. He begins walking back to his father's house. He has this whole speech. You actually get to hear... Uh, his speech to himself that he's probably practicing as he's walking. Father, would you hire me as a servant? I could work as a hired hand. But remember, he doesn't even get to make that speech. Like he gets within visible distance of a father who has been waiting on the front porch. He jumps off the front porch. He runs to him. He grabs him in his arms. The son starts his speech, but he doesn't get to say it because the father is lavish with him. He gives him a robe and he gives him shoes and he gives him a ring. And then he kills a fattened calf and throws a party for him. And the prodigal son who is home is now sitting in his father's house. He's bathed. He's dressed. For the first time in a long time, he has a full stomach. He's seated at the table of honor. Guests are greeting him. His father is just beaming at this party with pride. And imagine the prodigal son saying, I wonder if this is the right time to ask about being a hired hand. (laughs) Like, I wonder if now that we've eaten, I can get back to my speech that I had before about getting a job with the livestock. What are you talking about? You are a son. You are a daughter. Christian, the world is yours. Christian, 
Christ is seated in the heavenly places above all ruler and authority and power. And he has placed his church, Ephesians 1, with dominion over all spiritual forces. Christian, you are filled with the fullness of God. Take whatever weak whatever paltry, whatever small-minded, cut-flower prayer request that you were about to make today, don't make it, take it home, quadruple it, bring it to God, and watch Him do infinitely more abundantly above all that we ask or think. Do it. God's waiting. He welcomes it. Well, we've got a week of Christmas shopping ahead of us, right? We're, uh, some of us, you can, there's a dividing line between those of us who stand today with our Christmas shopping done and those who haven't started, right? And I'm not going to name names, but it feels good right now to be just kind of relaxed and, you know, we've got a week and a half to go. Um, but anyway, I sat earlier, way, like a month ago when we were shopping, I, I sat with my eldest son, Judah, and I said to him, Judah, he's sitting in the back there, what, what do you want for Christmas? What do you, give me some ideas. What, what's your Christmas list? What do you want for Christmas? And, and Judah, without batting an eye, said, well, that depends, Dad. Is this going to be a small Christmas or a medium Christmas or a big Christmas? Because I've seen all three. And I just want to know which one are we working with this year, you know? And that's a fantastic question. If you're dying to know, I said, of course, a medium Christmas. I like to just set mediocre expectations with everything I do, but especially with gift giving. At the Gentino house, we're having a medium Christmas. But in the book of Ephesians, we're having a really, really big Christmas this year. A big Christmas, like an infinitely more abundantly above all we ask or think kind of Christmas. And God tells us the precise reason he's doing this. Why why is he being so generous with us? Why would he give us the gospel, give us Christ, give us salvation, and then on top of all that, make for a really extravagant Christmas? He says, okay, I'll tell you. I'll tip my hand to you. I'll tell you exactly why I'm doing this. And it's in verse 21. This is why. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God, why would you be so generous and answer above all that I can ask or think? And God says, This is why I'm trying to show my splendor to the world. I I, I want the world to taste his worth. I want us to feel. I want us to emote. I want us to look in awe upon my glory. And I'm going to do this, imagine this, through my church and through Jesus Christ. 
You thought the heavens declared the glory of God? Just wait until you see the church of Christ declare the glory of God. You thought the tabernacle declared the glory of God? Just wait till you see my son born as a baby in a manger, tabernacle among us, and declare the glory of God. God says, I'm not done answering prayer requests until my glory in the church and in Christ is displayed in every single generation from now until kingdom come and forever after. That's my plan through prayer. That's what I hope to accomplish. Church, whatever you can even imagine that would be a small sliver of that story of God's glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, ask for it in prayer and watch God amaze us. I want to close with a very small season of prayer. Paul says in verse 14 that he gets on his knees to pray. And so I want to invite you just in these few minutes to find a posture of humility for prayer. I'm literally going to get on my knees behind the pulpit. You could turn at your seat and get on your knees there. At your seat, you could simply bow your head and close your eyes. Whatever posture spells humility, we joke that the only liturgical posture not in the Bible is slouching. So we're not going to do that this morning. Any other posture that spells God is rich, I am poor, I'm ready to ask. Let's do that now. And I'm going to close with a season of prayer and then we'll worship together. Christians, let's get on our knees and pray. Heavenly Father, we are just overwhelmed in these moments by your glory and your splendor and your wealth. Every time we start to scratch the surface of this and think we, we have a handle on about what your net worth is, it, it just opens up into this chasm and it's more and it's better and it's richer and it's fuller than we could ever imagine. You've said that you want to answer prayer requests so that the glory of God is shown in the church and in Christ, all places, in all generations, and for all ages until your kingdom comes, and then forever after. And so this morning, we want to ask boldly. I'm just going to tell you what I'm thinking And I can't wait for your Holy Spirit to take that and to surprise us. Lord, make us a church who prays on our knees. Make us a church who is desperate and needy for your grace new and fresh every morning. Let us not be like the Israelites who tried to put manna in a jar and eat it the next day. It's not meant to be eaten a day old. Nor is your grace. Would you pour it out fresh every morning? Make us individuals who are hungry to pray. When you open our eyes in the morning, let us long for you and seek you first and foremost in the morning. Let us seek you as spouses and as friends and as roommates. Let us seek you with our families. Lord, forgive me for my small prayers with and for my kids. That they do well in school and have a good night's sleep. 
That's wonderful, Lord. Please do that. But above all, convert them and make them take up their cross and follow you and display the glory of God in the church and in Christ Jesus. Father, will you take these paltry prayer requests and would you surprise us in the ways you ask for them? Hear now our prayers as we have a moment of personal prayer before you, Lord. Dear God, I pray that you take everything that we just asked or even thought about and I pray you would multiply it and that you would actually do infinitely more abundantly than all we could think or ask. Glory to God in the highest, in Christ Jesus' name, amen.